Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS. Here's the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, the first day of March, 2023. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's get started with the weather forecast for today. This from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Welcome to March, the month where everything can happen, sometimes all in one day. At least for today, we are in pretty good shape. Plan on highs well into the 40s north, with widespread lower 50s farther south. A fair amount of sunshine is expected as last night's system moves away. One thing to watch this afternoon will be increasing winds as a cold front approaches. These winds may feasibly gust to 30 to 35 miles per hour. Look for this later in the afternoon into the early evening. The track of Friday's system is critical as to how much precipitation we wind up with. As of this writing, there continues to be a large spread in the data, and there remains a chance that this system completely misses the southeast. There's enough of a threat to at least maintain a low snow chance at this time, but we'll continue to watch as we get closer and adjust accordingly. Beyond that, plan on fairly quiet weather conditions for the weekend, with highs mainly into the 40s. Additional chances of precipitation look increasingly likely Sunday night into Monday once again. Today's sunrise was at 6.44 a.m., and the sun sets at 5.59 p.m. Let's look at the front page now. We have these stories to read. State error may have $100,000 cost to Waverly. Anti-LGBTQ bills spur walkout. $5 million sought from county for Unidome project. Carter still a model for candidates asking, why not me? And let's begin reading the lead story at the top of the page. Republican bill adds asset test. $15,000 or less would be the limit for beneficiaries of Medicaid and SNAP. GOP advances bill to change who qualifies for food aid. The story was written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. State House Republicans advanced legislation Tuesday that would add more restrictions and requirements to public assistance programs. The measures would require an asset test for Iowans applying for the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, more commonly known as food stamps, as well as for Medicaid, the joint federal and state program that finances health care coverage annually for roughly 805,000 low-income and disabled Iowans. Iowa now requires recipients to meet an income threshold but does not restrict assets. State Study Bill 1105 and House File 3 both passed out of committee largely along party lines with Democrats opposed, making them eligible for further consideration and floor debate this legislative session. The measures propose the State Department of Health and Human Services enlist a private vendor to verify assets, identity, and other eligibility requirements for hundreds of thousands of Iowans participating in public assistance programs involving federal and state benefits no later than July 1, 2025. Republicans said requiring Iowans 
who are receiving public assistance benefits to undergo more rigorous eligibility verification reviews would bolster program efficiency and weed out abuse and make sure that people who are applying are eligible. Quote, the intention of this bill is to ensure Iowa's welfare programs are sustainable and remain available for the Iowans who truly need them, said bill sponsor Representative Thomas Journey, a Republican from Lamar's. Quote, the legislature is dedicated to protecting Iowa's safety net for Iowans in need, while at the same time protecting Iowa taxpayers from paying services for ineligible individuals, unquote. Democrats contend cases of fraud are low and pushed Republicans for evidence. The Iowa Department of Inspection and Appeals responded to 4,696 fraud referrals for the fiscal year ending June 30th. Investigations resulted in savings to the state of more than $8.4 million, according to a 2022 Fraud in Public Assistance Programs report. Of the referrals received by the department during the fiscal year, 97% were related to SNAP investigations. Under the legislation, which was amended following concerns that having a car or modest savings could disqualify already economically stressed Iowa families from public assistance. Households could have a maximum of $15,000 in assets. The test would apply to all liquid assets, such as checking and savings accounts and personal property, excluding one vehicle. The bills were amended to exclude a second vehicle with a fair market value less than $10,000, among other personal property and assets that could be counted against recipients. They also established the income threshold for Iowa families receiving food assistance at 160% of the federal poverty level. That equates to a household income of about $48,000 for a family of four. Senator Sarah Trone-Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines, argued the proposed changes would likely raise the state's costs by increasing the amount of paperwork and administrative oversight, while callously taking food out of the mouths of tens of thousands of children, who represent one-third of the approximately 300,000 people in Iowa who experience food insecurity. Trone-Garriott noted that Pennsylvania in 2015 ditched its asset test for SNAP after a three-year pilot program that saw administrative costs outweigh reductions in spending. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly 279000 in 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to federal data. Quote, two-thirds of these households have children in them, said Representative Austin Baith, a Democrat from Des Moines. Quote, so I think it's really important as we raise barriers to these programs, we realize that this may have unintended consequences of having children go without food they would otherwise receive, unquote. Critics, too, argue asset hurdles would hurt low-income seniors and recipients with health problems. Democrats, as well, worried the legislation will create problems at a time when Iowans on Medicaid could lose their coverage over the next year. 
Under the COVID-19 public health emergency, the federal government required state Medicaid agencies to provide coverage even if an individual's eligibility changed, but the emergency is set to expire. The Senate bill does not include other changes proposed in the House bill, which would do the following. Require able-bodied adult Medicaid recipients to work at least 20 hours a week to receive health care benefits and bar SNAP recipients from buying candy and soda. Bill sponsor and Senate Health and Human Services Chair, Senator Jeff Elder, a Republican from State Center, said House and Senate Republicans, quote, are working to find agreement where we can, unquote. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require federal approval. Jennery said the bill will head to the House Budget Committee and have a fiscal note drafted by the nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency analyzing the fiscal impacts of the bill. Edler estimated the legislation would cost $3 million to implement. Our next story is titled, Anti-LGBTQ Bills Spur Walkouts, and it begins with a photograph of high school students from West High School participating in a walkout last April in response to the signing of Bill HF-2416 by Governor Kim Reynolds in early March of 2022. The bill banned transgender girls from playing on girls' teams in school sports. Groups urge students across Iowa to protest legislation Wednesday. The story comes to us from the New York Daily News. Students across Iowa are walking out of class Wednesday to protest a flurry of bills targeting LGBTQ rights introduced in the legislature this session. Dubbed the Iowa We Say Gay walkout, the statewide event seeks to highlight the growing number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills that could potentially become law in the state. Those include bills that would force teachers to out transgender students, ban K-3 class discussions on LGBTQ issues, prohibit doctors from providing gender-affirming medical care to minors, and or bar teachers from mentioning gender identity to students up to the 8th grade. The initiative is being led by the student groups Iowa WTF, described as, quote, a coalition of young people fighting discriminatory legislation through advocacy, activism, and civic engagement, unquote. And the Iowa Queer Student Alliance, Iowa QSA, a group of young Iowans fighting back against harmful legislation attacking queer youth, unquote. Quote, recent legislation has been targeting this group, including don't say gay, and don't say trans bills, unquote. Iowa's QSA wrote on Instagram last week, calling all students in the state to join the protest, quote, well, here in Iowa, we say gay, the group added. As of Tuesday morning, students at 13 school districts across the state and one university were planning to participate in the walkout, which was organized to tell lawmakers to listen to those who would be most affected by the bills, the students. According to the Des Moines Register, walkouts are planned at schools in Johnston, Ankeny, Ames, West Des Moines, Storm Lake, Des Moines, Waukee, Marion, 
Urbandale, Iowa City, Fort Dodge, Bettendorf, and Iowa State University for Wednesday afternoon. In Des Moines, students are arranging walkouts at Central Campus and East High School. Quote, there have been children, psychiatrists, doctors, parents, teachers, who have been talking directly to lawmakers about how these bills are harming students and will cause things like bullying, depression, and anxiety, unquote. Iowa WTF and Iowa QSA member Gemma Bullock told the Des Moines Register, quote, they just will not listen, the high school senior added. Republican lawmakers across the U.S. have introduced a record number of bills targeting LGBTQ youths this year, legislation that especially affects an already vulnerable population. Quote, with over 250 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced so far in 2023, we need to organize our community and allies to push back against these damaging bills, unquote. Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of LGBTQ Media Advocacy Group, GLAAD, or GLAAD, said last week, in Iowa, at least 14 bills have been slammed as anti-LGBTQ by Iowa WTF. The organization offers more details on each piece of legislation, their sponsors, and potential consequences for LGBTQ people in the Iowa Legislature Bill Watch, a list that is updated each week. Wednesday's walkout will be an historic event for our community, Iowa QSA said. Next, we have a story filed by Maria Cooper. UNI asks for $5 million from County Board for the Unidome renovations. Dateline Waterloo. The University of Northern Iowa is updating the Unidome, but it needs more funding to complete the project. President Mark Nook, along with David Harris and Jamar Thompson of UNI Athletics, presented their pitch to the Blackhawk County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. They asked for $5 million. The Unidome is nearing 50 years old and will undergo a $50 million renovation. Quote, the dome has represented so many things to so many different people over the years, Harris, the director of athletics, said. Quote, it's our turn for the next 50 years that the dome has a vibrant facility. We are building the UNI that tomorrow needs. The work will be done in three phases. The first phase, which is currently underway, will cost about $20 million. It includes a football team meeting room, which is already complete, a replacement of the fabric roof, and an addition to the west side of the building that will feature a centralized arena entrance. The second phase is also estimated at about $20 million. This will include replacing the track and the bowl, such as seat color changes to purple and adding handrails to the steps. The third phase will cost $5 million to $10 million and will include upgrades to graphics, lighting, sound systems, and adding a marquee sign out front to signify events happening at the Dome. There is already $17 million pledged for the first phase, but President Nook said he's been repeatedly asked what the city of Cedar Falls and the county are doing to help fund it. The Board of Supervisors didn't discuss what funding, if any, 
that it will provide. Harris said they asked the city of Cedar Falls for $5 million and were pledged $2.5 million over a two-year time period. In other business, the board unanimously approved the following, a $700,000 federal aid agreement with the Iowa Department of Transportation for a county highway bridge program. The program will help to fund the East Cedar Wapsie Road Bridge over Crane Creek and an estimated $500,000 treasurer's office remodeling proposal that will be paid for with American Rescue Plan funding. Next, we have a story that comes from the Associated Press, journalist Bill Barrow, titled, Carter's Still a Model for Candidates Asking, quote, Why Not Me? And it begins with the photograph of President Carter being sworn in as the 39th President of the United States in 1977, Dateline Atlanta, as the 2024 campaign season begins. Political players are looking in the mirror and deciding whether they see an American president staring back. It was no different for Jimmy Carter in the early 1970s. It took meeting several presidential candidates and then encouragement from an esteemed elder statesman before the young governor of Georgia, who had never met a president himself, saw himself as something bigger. He announced his White House bid on December 12th, 1974, amid fallout from the Vietnam War and President Richard Nixon's resignation. Then he leveraged his unknown and politically untainted status to become the 39th president. That whirlwind path has been a model, explicit and otherwise, for would-be contenders ever since. Quote, Jimmy Carter's example absolutely created a 50-year window of people saying, why not me? said Steve Schall, who worked on President Barack Obama's campaigns and is a longtime supporter of President Joe Biden. Carter's climb is getting new attention as the 98-year-old receives end-of-life care at home in Plains, Georgia. David Axelrod, who helped engineer Obama's four-year ascent from state senator to the Oval Office, said Carter's model is about more than how his grassroots strategy turned the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary into his springboard. Quote, there was a moral stain on the country, and this was a guy of deep faith, unquote, Axelrod said. He seemed like a fresh start, and I think he understood that he could offer something different that might be able to meet the moment, unquote. Donna Brazil, who managed Democrat Al Gore's 2000 presidential campaign, got her start on Carter's two national campaigns. Quote, in 1976, it was just Jimmy Carter's time, she said. Of course, the seeds of his presidential run sprouted even before Nixon won a second term, and certainly before his resignation in August of 1974. In Carter's telling, he did not run for governor in 1966. He lost, or in 1970, thinking about Washington. Even when he announced his presidential bid, neither he nor those closest to him were completely confident. Quote, President of what? His mother Lillian replied when he told her his plans. But soon after he be became governor in 1971, Carter's team envisioned him as a national player. They were encouraged in part 
by the May 31st Time magazine cover depicting Carter alongside the headline, Dixie Whistles a Different Tune, inside a flattering profile framed Carter as a model New South governor. In October of 1971, Carter allied Dr. Peter Bourne, an Atlanta physician who would become U.S. drug czar, sent his politician friend an unsolicited memo outlining how he could be elected president. On October 17th, a wider circle of advisors sat with Carter at the governor's mansion to discuss it. Carter, then 47, wore blue jeans and a t-shirt, according to biographer Jonathan Alter. The team, including Carter's wife Rosalind, now 95, began considering the idea seriously. Quote, we never used the word president, Carter recalled upon his 90th birthday, but just referred to national office. Carter invited high-profile Democrats, Washington players, who were running or considering running in 1972, to one-on-one -on -one meetings at the mansion. He would later jump at the chance to lead the Democratic National Committee's national campaign. The position allowed him to travel the country, helping candidates up and down the ballot. He was among the Southern governors who angled to be McGovern's running mate in 1972. Alter said Carter was never seriously considered. Still, Carter got to know, among others, former Vice President Hubert Humphrey and Senators Henry Jackson of Washington, Eugene McCarthy of Maine, and George McGovern of South Dakota, the eventual nominee who lost a landslide to Nixon. Carter later explained that he had previously defined the nation's highest office by its occupants immortalized with monuments. Quote, for the first time, Carter told the New York Times, I started comparing my own experiences and knowledge of government with candidates not against the presidency and not against Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. It made it a whole lot easier, unquote. Advisor Hamilton Jordan crafted a detailed campaign plan calling for matching Carter's outsider good government credentials to voters' general disillusionment even before Watergate. But the team still spoke and wrote in code as if the higher office weren't obvious. It was reported during his campaign that Carter told family members around Christmas 1972 that he would run in 1976. Carter later wrote in a memoir that a visit from former Secretary of State Dean Rusk in early 1973 affirmed his leanings. Carter described Rusk in adoring terms. Quote, our most distinguished Georgian, Carter called the man who led the State Department during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. During another private confab in Atlanta, Rusk told Carter plainly, Governor, I think you should run for president in 1976. That, Carter wrote, removed our remaining doubts, unquote. Shaw said the process is not always so involved. Quote, these are intensely competitive people already, he said, of governors, senators, and others in high office. Quote, if you're wired in that capacity, it's hard to step away from it, unquote. In our last article to read on the front page, Waverly anticipates losing more than $100,000 because of state rollback error. Story filed by Andy Malone. Dateline Waverly. 
Administrator James Bronner informed the City Council on Monday that the state's rollback error could mean at least $100,000 less in revenue than had been anticipated. That same night, the Council canceled a fiscal year 2024 budget hearing, originally March 6th, in anticipation that the error's exact impact will be known sometime by March 20th. A new hearing date is expected to be set at that point. On February 20th, Governor Kim Reynolds signed the bill clarifying the residential rollback percentage or the proportion of a property's value that is taxable as 54.6%, not 56.5%. Quote, we take that hit to the fund balance and that's all you can do, or you cut back to try to even it out, Bronner said. He didn't see the latter as realistic, having already trimmed back expenses. Quote, any position that we had was open, new positions, equipment, building improvements. We trimmed out all of it that we could, other than replacing broken equipment or things we really have to have, Bronner said. Quote, it would most likely come down to bodies at this point in time, which is not something I really want to do right now, unquote. Iowa municipalities are anticipating future changes to the budget construction as state legislators consider property tax reform bills. However, Bronner doesn't anticipate any of the other laws, if adopted, having an immediate impact on budgets for the next fiscal year that cities are currently reworking. His staff has begun to dissect its budgeting more than in previous years. Quote, we're just battling a lot of things on multiple fronts that we haven't really had to in the past, if ever, he said. In other business, the council approved the sale of $1.5 million in local option sales tax revenue bonds to the bidder with the lowest interest rate to help pay for a third and final phase of its ball diamond project at the new Cedar River Park. Bronner says the project is taking shape and nearing completion. The grand opening date was slated for some time in the spring. The phase brings out new dugouts, handrails, press boxes, restrooms, a maintenance building, and concession stand, and accompanies the eight ball diamonds for youths of all abilities to play baseball and softball that had been constructed in previous phases. Northland Securities of Minneapolis, Minnesota, was the lowest of four bidders, offering a 5.07 rate. Quote, this 5% was something we were anticipating, said Maggie Berger of Spear Financial. Quote, we don't want to see it, but we were anticipating that this was right where the market was going to be on these, unquote. Bronner had anticipated the bonds maturing most likely in seven years, but Berger said they can be called after June 1, 2028. The elimination of the local option sales tax, a mechanism most local governments use that imposes a one-cent sales tax on top of the state rate, is at the center of the changes legislators are discussing in Des Moines. City officials are unsure what that could mean for these bonds but that didn't stop the council from moving forward. Quote, what I can tell you from the words of your bonding attorney is if there's nothing in there grandfathering these types of bonds in, typically then you see class action lawsuits 
come about from the cities who are sitting on local option sales tax, and they have to do that to protect their investors, Berger said. Now we turn the page to the Cedar Valley section of the Courier, classrooms to host visiting artists. Fine arts instruction is the focus of Waterloo School Board approvals. Story submitted by Maria Kuyper, Dateline Waterloo. The future of the arts in Waterloo Community Schools is evolving after the Board of Education approved two items on Monday. The Board approved a Memorandum of Understanding with the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center at a cost of $24,620 for arts integration into three elementary schools. The MOU provides a week-long residencies for artists that focus on equity in writing. The residencies involve dance and theater artists. Quinn Johnson will be at the Fred Becker Elementary School on March 24th through 31st. Johnson is a tap dancer who bridges her performance art with literacy and math. She will be teaching third grade students. Johnson is a graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C. She toured as the tap soloist in the Tony Award-winning production, quote, After Midnight. She was also featured soloist in Washington Ballet's production of The Great Gatsby and Cirque du Soleil's Mosaic production. At Lou Henry Elementary School, artist Kiana Cutts will be visiting April 16th through the 21st. Cuts is a playwright and poet who will teach third graders about fairy tales and theater. Lincoln Elementary will host artist Sierra Keller-Jones from May 14th through the 20th. She will be working with students on memoirs. Travis Gratinu Zinnell, the district's instructional coach for fine arts, noted that all three residents are black in an effort to include artists who represent the racial-ethnic background of students they are teaching. The total cost to Waterloo schools will be funded through federal elementary and secondary school emergency relief money. The board also approved curriculum for secondary vocal music classes at a total cost of $85,170. Sixth through twelfth grade vocal programs will now have Music First, a program with different platforms for music composition and sight reading. Music First includes the beat-making program Soundtrap, Flat.io, which will help with writing music and sight reading factory, which improves music literacy. That portion of the curriculum costs $51,579. Instructional supplies, such as copies of music, recording equipment, and pianos, costs $33,159. The contract is for eight and a half years, with implementation to begin this year. The board also unanimously approved the following. The 2023-24 school district calendar with kindergarten and first, second, sixth, and ninth grades starting on August 23rd. All other grades will start on August 24th. And a $42,600 quote from Brecky Mechanical Contractors of Cedar Rapids for the Central Middle School Pool Piping Replacement Project. And lastly, 
a $33,574 contract with Egan Supply Company to refinish the East High School gym floor. Two other bids were received for $34,545 and $43,051. The March 13th board meeting was canceled due to spring break. The next meeting is March 27th. Now listeners, we'll return to more local news from The Courier later, but right now we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, March 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Waterloo. Grace M. Preby, 81, of Waterloo, passed away peacefully Friday, February 24th, at her home. She was born September 30, 1941, in Jamestown, North Dakota, to Lloyd and Josephine Anderson Willie. She was the 11th of 12 children. Her family lived in Ypsilanti, North Dakota. She married Robert L. Preby, in 1960, in Jamestown, North Dakota, and they later divorced. Grace loved to be around family and enjoyed spending time with her grandchildren. A private family celebration of life will be held. Next, in Denver, Dwayne Delbert Schloman, 94, of Denver, Iowa, passed away on Friday night, February 24th, at Bartles Lutheran Retirement Community in Waverly, Iowa. Duane was born on July 24, 1928, in Bremer County, Iowa, the son of Henry August and Irene Wernicke Schloman. He was baptized on August 12, 1928, and confirmed on May 31, 1942, both at Emanuel Lutheran Church, Klinger. Duane graduated from Denver High School in 1947. On October 8, 1950, Duane was united in marriage to Evelyn Dorothy Kruger at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Denver. Duane served in the United States Navy from April 11, 1951, until his honorable discharge on March 30, 1955. Duane worked for John Deere for 38 years and retired in 1987. After 51 years of marriage, Evelyn passed away in December of 2001. Duane was a longtime member of St. John Lutheran Church in Denver. His hobbies included the restoration of two-cylinder John Deere tractors and antique Ford and Maxwell cars, tractor rides, and driving in parades. Funeral services for Duane will be at 10 o'clock a.m. on Friday, March 3rd at St. John Lutheran Church in Denver with Pastor Larry Felt officiating. The service may be viewed on the church Facebook page, St. John Lutheran Church, Denver, Iowa, under videos. Burial will follow in Fairview Cemetery in Denver, with military rites provided by Acker Matthias, American Legion Post 653. Visitation will be from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. on March 2nd, at the Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Denver, and one hour prior to the service on Friday. Memorials may be directed to St. John Lutheran Church 
and online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com. Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Denver is assisting Dwayne's family. The funeral home's phone number is 319-984-5379. Here are the courier's death notices. Michael John Mike Ellen Becker, 72, of Tama, died Sunday, February 26th, at his home. Arrangements are with Cruz Phillips Funeral Home in Tama, Toledo. And Henrietta Bernice Kluster, age 100, of Applington, died Monday, February 27th, at Maple Manor Village in Applington, of natural causes. Arrangements are with Redmond Funeral and Cremation Services in Applington. Dennis Martin, 81, of Iowa Falls, died Tuesday, February 28th, at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. Arrangements are with Council Woodley Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Iowa Falls. And lastly, Brandon L. Mills, 48, of Rhinebeck, died Sunday, February 26th, at his home. Arrangements for Brandon are with Haggerty Whitechoff Grarup Funeral Service. And now, listeners, we turn to the opinion section. This editorial comes from Storm Lake Times pilot, editor Art Cullen. The title is Kids Work, Refugees Languish. In Iowa, we are talking seriously about letting 14-year-olds work in slaughterhouses. That's how tight the job market is. The absurdity does not stop there. The Biden administration is looking to make it even more difficult for refugees fleeing terror in Latin America to enter the United States for safety and freedom. The administration has put up a rule that will bar refugees from asylum claims if they enter the U.S. illegally. That is, they must apply to the USA for asylum from another country, like Mexico, through which refugees flee, rather than showing up at a point of entry or by a mobile app. Imagine someone from Nicaragua trying to navigate a badly designed government app on a borrowed cell phone, or in the alternative, trying to navigate a corrupt and inefficient system in Mexico. This reverses our traditional position from which a Cuban could come ashore here and seek refuge or someone fleeing a death squad in El Salvador could present themselves at El Paso for asylum. It will take effect May 11th when pandemic-related immigration restrictions from the Trump administration are lifted. This rule will essentially make permanent some of those restrictions. It dims the light of liberty. But the measure is politically expedient. President Biden is mounting his re-election bid by looking tough on immigration. He got elected in the first place, promising a compassionate view toward immigrants and refugees. Nothing has been done to advance their cause. Little wonder that Latinos in Storm Lake were not motivated to turn out in the last two election cycles. Meanwhile, Iowa politicians will let the kids do the night cleanup at the pack, because we wouldn't want to allow a Venezuelan for being so presumptuous as to pursue freedom in the United States. We frustrate dreams and leave people in danger for their lives because we cannot organize ourselves to get them a job in Storm Lake. Now here's another editorial 
from the Storm Lake Times pilot. This time, the writer is Randy Evans of Iowa Freedom of Information Council. A rural school teaches lessons on governing. There is an interesting study in contrasts playing out right now in Iowa. One example comes from the Davis County School District in Bloomfield. It is the 96th largest of Iowa's 328 public districts, with an enrollment of 1,150 students. The other example comes from the Iowa Legislature and Governor Kim Reynolds. The Davis County School Board is wrestling with an incredibly difficult decision, whether to hold classes four days a week instead of the traditional five-day-a-week schedule. The decision-making process has been marked by ongoing public information over the past five months. There has been lots of opportunity for people to ask questions about what is best for the Davis County schools and Davis County kids. The process is geared both for learning what people in the district want and for helping the community become comfortable with the decision the school board eventually makes. On the other hand, the solid Republican majorities in the Iowa House and Iowa Senate, with a Republican in the governor's office, seem more interested in gaining legislative victories and less interested in following a process that builds confidence and acceptance among Iowans whose opinions differ from the Republicans. See what you think. There are several reasons the Davis County School District has been thinking about switching to a four-day schedule. Money is not the prime motivation, but eliminating one day of classes would cut fuel costs for school buses by 20%. That is not insignificant. Davis County has one of the biggest bus fleets in rural Iowa because the district covers the entire county, and every dollar spent on transportation is a dollar not available for classroom learning. The bigger reason for the possible schedule change would be to make it easier to recruit and retain quality teachers in a rural county where the closest Walmart is a half-hour drive. The decision-making process being used in Davis County has been refreshing. Last October, Superintendent Dan Mader created a team to formally study the pros and cons of a four-day school week. Business owners, parents of students, and other residents have been looped in. School employees were surveyed. Informational meetings were held via Zoom so people could hear what was being learned and ask questions. Representatives from Waco of Wayland and Moulton Udall, two rural districts that have already switched to a four-day week, shared the pluses and minuses, and more community forums are planned in the coming weeks. Through all of this, Meter has been available to the public, the people for whom he works, at his office, at school board meetings, at school activities, and at the Casey's or Brothers Market, if local folks have questions to ask or comments to offer. The process Meter and the board are following certainly contrasts with the process we see at the Iowa Capitol. Parents whose opinions are in line with the governor's on LGBTQ issues, controversial school books, or other hot-button topics can get meetings with her or have their calls returned by her aides. Parents of LGBTQ kids or people who oppose banning certain books are frustrated by the governor's refusal to meet with them. In the legislature, it is not unusual for the public to get less than one day's notice before a controversial bill is debated. 
Sometimes an important proposal is introduced in the legislature, voted on both the House and Senate, and then signed into law by the governor, all in just a handful of days. Three weeks ago, the governor unveiled a huge bill to reorganize the executive branch of state government. Unlike Dan Meter, Reynolds and her staff have not been available to answer reporters' questions or the public's about the far-reaching bill. That there are questions should surprise no one, because the document authorizing the reorganization, Senate Study Bill 1123, is 1,570 pages long. One worrisome section would change the long-standing practice of when Iowa's attorney general, rather than the locally elected county attorney, prosecutes an accused criminal. For nearly 50 years, the attorney general has stepped in only when the county attorney asks for help. Reynolds's government reorganization makes clear the attorney general could choose to prosecute any criminal case, even without an invitation from the local county attorney. That change raises concerns political considerations could be injected into the decision whether someone is or is not prosecuted on criminal charges. While campaigning last year for Brenna Byrd, Iowa's new attorney general, Reynolds often told voters, quote, I want my own attorney general, unquote. But given the governor her own attorney general gives many Iowans the hives, that is especially true with some lawmakers pushing for teachers and librarians to be prosecuted for the books they make available or for transgender people to be prosecuted for using bathrooms not matching their gender at birth. Calhoun County Attorney Tina Meth Farrington, the president of the Iowa County Attorneys Association, is a Republican like Reynolds and Byrd. She told the Cedar Rapids Gazette she believes the governor's proposal is intended to allow the attorney general to prosecute local cases if a county attorney chooses not to file charges. Quote, it's there because there's a concern there have been county attorneys who campaigned on spending time and resources on more important things instead of low-level crimes, unquote. Beth Farrington said, apparently a reference to new Polk County attorney Kimberly Graham, a Democrat. Graham has pledged not to prosecute low-level drug crimes like marijuana possession. She also has vowed not to ask for bail for people not considered to be a threat, although a judge, not the prosecutor, makes that decision. Meth Farrington told the Gazette, quote, I don't want this office publicized, and this is kind of throwing politics into the game. I just don't like that, unquote. Randy Evans, our author here, is the executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council and a longtime journalist and editor in Iowa. Now for our last editorial today, we turn to the New York Times, titled Conspiracy Theorizing Goes Off the Rails, written by Paul Krugman. On February 3rd, a train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Some of the contents immediately caught fire. Three days later, authorities released and burned off additional material from five tankers. These fires caused elevated levels of harmful chemicals in the local air, although the Environmental Protection Agency says that the pollution wasn't severe enough to cause long-term health damage. Train derailments are actually fairly common, 
but you can see how this one might become a political issue. After all, the Obama administration tried to improve rail safety, for example by requiring superior modern brakes on high-hazard trains, and then the Trump administration reversed those regulations. As it happens, those regulations probably wouldn't have prevented the Ohio derailment because they were too narrow to have covered this particular train. Still, the events in East Palestine would seem, on the face of it, to strengthen the progressive case for stronger regulation of industry and hurt the conservative case against regulation. Instead, however, the right is on the attack, claiming that blame for the disaster in Ohio rests on the Biden administration, which it says doesn't care about or is even actively hostile to white people. This is vile. It is also amazing. As far as I can tell, right-wing commentators have just invented a whole new class of conspiracy theory, one that doesn't even try to explain how the alleged conspiracy is supposed to work. Conspiracy theories generally come in two forms, those that involve a small, powerful cabal, and those that require that thousands of people colluding to hide the truth. Historically, theories about powerful cabals have often been tied to anti-Semitism, to the belief that the elders of Zion and or the Rothschilds are shaping history, a view promoted by some actually powerful people, including Henry Ford. These days, however, the most prominent example is QAnon, with its claim that a secret ring of pedophiles controls the U.S. government. And at this point, of course, QAnon adherents hold significant power within the House Republican Caucus. The thing about secret cabal theories is that while they're generally absurd, they're hard to definitely disprove. Is President Biden actually a shape-shifting alien lizard? The White House physician will tell you no, but how do you know that he isn't a lizard too? Another kind of conspiracy theory, by contrast, seems as if it would be easy to disprove, because thousands of people would have to be in on the plot, without a single one breaking ranks. A prime example, still highly influential on the right, is the assertion that climate change is a hoax. To believe that, you have to claim that thousands of scientists are colluding to falsify the evidence, but that hasn't stopped the belief that climate change isn't real from being widespread, maybe even dominant, on the U.S. political right. The big lie about the, quote, stolen 2020 election would seem to fall into the same category, requiring malfeasance by election officials across the country. Yet a large majority of Republicans told pollsters that they didn't believe Biden actually won. And there's a new conspiracy theory in town. The claim that the war in Ukraine isn't really happening, that it's some kind of fake. Who would possibly believe that all the reporting, all the film footage is concocted? Well, Donald Trump's first national security advisor is apparently now a Ukraine war truther, and I won't be surprised if we start to hear this from many people on the right. But the conspiracy theorizing about the Ohio derailment takes it to a whole other level. When Tucker Carlson suggests that this happened because East Palestine is a rural white community, with another Fox News host going so far as to say that the Biden administration is 
quote, spilling toxic chemicals on poor white people, unquote. How is this even supposed to have worked? How did Biden officials engineer a derailment by a private sector train company running on privately owned track, which lobbied against stronger safety regulations? The administration also hasn't stinted on disaster aid. Multiple federal agencies quickly arrived on the scene, and Ohio's Republican governor says of the federal response, quote, I don't have complaints. We're getting the help that we need, unquote. But never mind. Something bad happened to conservative white people, so surely woke progressives must have been responsible. Given what we've learned about how Fox handled claims of a stolen election, feeding the big lie in public while mocking it in private, it's a good bet that the network and other right-wing commentators know perfectly well that their accusations about the derailment are junk, but they know their audience and probably believe that it's good business to propound racist conspiracy theories even if they make no logical sense. Of course, it does no good to appeal to the right's better nature. But let me make a plea to mainstream media. Please don't report on this as if there were an actual conspiracy about who's responsible for the East Palestine disaster. And now, listeners, let's return to reading local news from The Courier. Driver arrested in Waterloo crash. Car lands in front yard after hitting utility pole. Story filed by Andy Malone. Dateline, Waterloo. A Waterloo woman has been arrested in a Monday night crash that damaged a utility pole. Waterloo police arrested Gloria Jean Hentz, 67, on charges of first offense operating while intoxicated, child endangerment, and failure to maintain control. She was also charged with fifth-degree criminal mischief for allegedly damaging a chair at the police station. Hence was released pending trial. Hence was driving a Chevrolet Equinox on East Mullen Avenue around 6.15 p.m. when she apparently lost control. The vehicle hit a pole and rolled, coming to a rest on its tires in the yard of 216 East Mullen. A six-year-old boy was a passenger in the vehicle. Paramedics with Waterloo Fire Rescue examined both at the scene, but they were not taken to the hospital, according to police. Officers noted an odor of alcohol at the scene, and hence blew a .180 blood alcohol content, more than twice the legal limit, on a data master breath test, according to court records. Next in the story filed by Courier staff, John Deere grants $500,000 for Gates Park Project, Dateline Waterloo. John Deere Waterloo is partnering with the city's Leisure Services Commission to make improvements to Gates Park. Deere is giving a $500,000 grant to the project, which will include new inclusive playground, spray park, basketball court, amphitheater, soccer field, and skating, among other things. Quote, John Deere is focused on making investments that empower the most vulnerable and marginalized families and youth in our home communities, said Mindy Smith from John Deere Waterloo's Community Relations Manager. She said that in a news release. Quote, we feel the amenities in the Gates Park Master Plan will have a significant impact in the heart of a neighborhood that we care a lot about. 
It will also provide recreation opportunities for youth, free alternatives for families to gather, and will improve the overall beautification of the neighborhood, unquote. Quote, the Gates Park project will be the largest park investment in the history of this city, Mayor Quentin Hart said in a news release. It will transform the over 65-acre green space into an inclusive destination for all to enjoy, unquote. Leisure Services Director Paul Hutting said in the news release that the grant gets officials closer to meeting their goal of $17.5 million for the Transforming Gates Burns Park projects. They currently have more than $14.5 million in committed funds. And friends, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, March 1st. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can play a recording of today's reading of this newspaper or the others around the state that we record on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music